It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Tonight, a story of what turned out to be more than just a little misunderstanding. Our writer-reader is popular Visalia author Janet Nichols Lynch. The name of the story? Why I'm Calling 911. And here is the author, Janet Nichols Lynch, to read her story for us. Why I'm calling 911. I sat Matthew on my lap and started to read Emma Jean's Antlers. My mother never read to me. She says she did, but if she did, it couldn't have been very often because I don't remember it. I read to Matthew every day. I have put aside my dissertation, The Ornamentation of the Vocal Music of Barbara Strozzi so I can stay home and give him a good start in life. I have read him so many picture books that I think I can write one myself. It is writing of a sort, and I am a writer, although my published work has only appeared in professional journals of musicology. I hadn't read three pages before Matthew slipped onto his spine and kicked the book out of my grasp. I don't know how he knows the difference between fiction and nonfiction, but he only will listen to factual material, and it all has to be about firefighters and policemen. He handed me a visit to the firehouse, and that's when the phone rang. Is the man of the house at home? asked a gravelly female voice. No. Why should he be in the middle of the day? There are just we moms around, giving our kids a good start in life. When is a good time to reach him? You can't. I hardly could either. My husband has his own company, and he travels a lot. Do you realize you could save 35% on your utility bill just by incorporating a few energy-saving measures? I hate these telephone solicitations, but I wasn't raised to hang up on people. I don't think so, I said. We're pretty conservative around here. The woman chortled. That's what most people think. I'm sure one of our energy conservation consultants can give you some valuable tips. Let me save you some time. Whatever you're selling, we're not interested. We're renters. I'm not selling anything, insisted the woman so indignantly, as if she was falsely accused. If you allow one of our consultants to visit your home, he will give you a coupon good for $20 off your next utilities bill. I wavered. We needed the 20 bucks. My husband and his partners have spent three years in pots of money developing a new computer language that apparently no computer wants to speak. We can send someone out this afternoon, said the woman, baiting me. Won't take but 10, 15 minutes. All right, I said too loudly, speaking over the nagging voice inside me that asked why bother. 
This guy will have a badge or something to show he's from your company, right? Yes, of course, the kooks running around these days. I had momentarily lost track of Matthew, and now he and a magic marker were dangerously close to the library books. Hold on. I dropped the receiver and lunged for the marker. I saw one pumper-tanker truck encircled in black spirals. Bad boy, I shouted, forgetting I'm supposed to say the thing that he did was bad. I clutched his shoulders and squeezed. I thought of my mother telling me she had a wooden spoon with Matthew's name on it, probably the same spoon that had my name on it when I was his age. I don't believe in wooden spoons. Instead, I try to reason with Matthew. He began screaming bloody murder. Over the top of his blonde hair, I saw the receiver turning on its spiral cord. A tightness in my chest dissolved into a sinking-down feeling. I realized why I agreed to the energy-saving consultation. I was desperate for adult company. I retrieved the phone. Hello, are you still there? Is that a child crying? No, it's the cat. We had a cat, but it died. I explained to Matthew all about death, but he still pretended the cat was around, calling it and then petting the air. I don't know why I lied about the cat to this woman. I mean... I don't make a habit of lying, but there was something about her tone, her question. I made an appointment for the energy-saving consultant to come out to the house, and then I hung up. Around the time I expected the guy, Matthew was watching Peter and the Wolf. Of course I want him to know the instruments of the orchestra, even though I haven't touched my oboe since my undergraduate days. The university I attend doesn't even offer an advanced degree in performance. Why rehash the same old pieces when you can learn something new about the music? While Matthew watched, I read picture books to myself, analyzing them. They each had a protagonist with a problem, a dog with an accordion nose, a cap salesman whose entire inventory is up a tree, a mouse dentist who must step into the mouth of a fox. For the book I was planning to write, I had a goose who wants to play a string instrument instead of brass. Get it? A goose honks, as in horn. Working on the story embarrassed me. I felt so ridiculous, I decided if it were ever published, I would use a pen name. The video ended and automatically began to rewind. A lawyer came on TV and told me if I had been in an accident and if I hired him, I could sue and make pots of money. Different people attested that the lawyer got them 50000 100000 and $250,000. I went into a little reverie then, thinking maybe I could earn that much by writing a best-selling picture book. Money, however, wasn't my problem. I wouldn't put Matthew into daycare even if I could afford it. And if I gave my husband access to more capital, he'd just pay off the debts of this company and work 70 hours a week starting up another. Matthew began drawing spirals with a blue marker over the face of the accident victim who had received the most money. I leaped off the sofa. Matthew, that means a timeout. I scooped him up and plopped him in an armchair. He stuck out his lower lip, ducked his head down, and rolled his baby blues at me. That's when the doorbell rang. As I went to answer it, Matthew padded after me as if I told him he could get up. 
If I took the time to insist that he adhere to his punishment, the energy-saving consultant would be long gone. I have to admit I was disappointed to find a woman in the entryway. I mean, I expected the electric company would send a man who might have something interesting to say. I know how awful that sounds, but you try talking to those women at the park about the paper versus cloth diaper issue or teaming double coupons up with on-sale items at the shop and save. It's times like those that I'm most desperate to be digging into 300-year-old musical scores, pondering Barbara Strozzi's trills and mordants. The woman was scrawny and 60-ish. She wore a baseball cap, the bill at a jaunty incline. Hello, she said, stepping inside uninvited. Her skinny butt was lost in the droopy seat of her forest green company jumpsuit. Her head was at a right angle to her body, and her top vertebra poked up like a golf ball. I'm Mrs. Waterbury from the Central Valley Electric Company. My trained ear recognized the gravelly voice right off. Aren't you the woman I spoke with on the phone? It seemed like you were going to send out someone else. Mrs. Waterbury handed me my $20 off coupon. I assure you, I am a perfectly qualified energy consultant. I'm sure you are. I actually felt the heat of a blush. I was that guilty of doubting her. I'm Chloe. This is Matthew. Mrs. Waterbury bent to peer into his face, her body contorting into a sort of lightning bolt. And how are you today, young man? I expected him to crouch between my legs and butt his head like he wanted back in, the way he usually does when a stranger talks to him. But instead he announced, This is not my house. I want to go to my house now. Mrs. Waterbury twisted her head to look up at me. She ducked down to inspect Matthew. She wrenched her face up at me. This went on for so long I was afraid she had a trick back and was stuck in her bent-over position. Have you moved recently? No, this is a new one on me. I figured Matthew was annoyed with me for giving him a time out. Where is your house, young man? Where are your clothes? It was one of those blistering days we get in Fresno, 100-plus degrees. Matthew was only wearing training pants made of a terry cloth covered with plastic. He had been in training for over a year. It's plenty to wear on a day like this, I said. My, but it is warm. Mrs. Waterbury fanned herself with an energy conservation pamphlet. She headed for the thermostat on the wall. If this thing is working right, you can save a bundle if you set it at 80 degrees when you're on vacation. It's set there even when we're here. I thought it was on the fritz, she said. I like to feel warm in the summer and cool in the winter, as close as I can get to the outside temperature. Whatever for, she asked. There's no need to feel uncomfortable. Life is hard enough. If you're too insulated, you don't feel anything at all. I didn't know why I was having this odd conversation with this odd woman. I suppose it came from not venting my thoughts very often. I gave Mrs. Waterbury a tour of the house. She said the energy-saving temperature for the hot water heater is 120 degrees. Ours is 110. She suggested awnings or solar screens. We have both plus shade trees. No one likes to be one up that much. I saw resentment burrowing in the rivulets of lipstick above her upper lip. 
she snapped open a collapsible yardstick like a Boy Scout, opening two opposite blades of his pocket knife. She pointed it at the trap door in the back porch ceiling. I'll just have a little peek at the attic now. There was something so vulnerable about the golf ball at the top of her spine that I thought about the accident lawyer winning people pots of money. Sorry, we don't have a ladder, I lied. I've got my own out in the truck. I told you we're renters. We're not going to buy more insulation, even if it doesn't measure up. Her eyes started twitching, the right one at a higher frequency than the left. You don't think I can do it, do you? You expected a man on the job, and when I showed up, you just assumed I'm incompetent. She sat back on her hip bone so that a little pot belly poked out like an oversized tumor. It sort of grossed me out. I was tired of the whole thing. Just then, I realized I hadn't seen Matthew in a while and went to check on him. He had seized the opportunity to haul out every toy he owns and arrange them on the hearth. He dumped Mr. Potato Head upside down in a teapot, balanced a pretend banana on his foot, clamped his mustache to the teapot handle, rammed Tinker Toys down into the pot between its rim and the potato. Matthew, you know the rules. One thing off the toy shelf at a time. I was exasperated, not because of his disobedience, but because I have demonstrated the proper use of each toy set over and over, and he refuses to play with them right. Instead, he has a compulsion to construct these bizarre arrangements any chance he gets. Coolly, he responded, I'm not named Matthew. I could feel Mrs. Waterbury's beady eyes boring into me. What is your name, young man? Clifford. Oh, yeah, right. You're Clifford, the big red dog. That's original, Matthew. Not Clifford, the big red dog. Clifford, the big blue bobo. Now that's original. I turned to Mrs. Waterbury. Not only was her cap twisted off to the side, but her hair was too, sort of like a hat within a hat. Don't you wish you had a boy named Clifford, the big blue bobo? I'm going now. But I'll be back, she said. That won't be necessary. Oh, yes, it is, she said, starting for the door. The next morning, I answered the doorbell, thinking it was UPS, and there stood Mrs. Waterbury. The gall of the woman showing up without calling first, I crossed my arms and said, Now is not a good time to climb into our attic. A camera flash exploded in my face, or rather, in Matthew's face, but still I saw dots. It made him crack up, so Mrs. Waterbury took his picture again. I don't want in your old attic. I just want a shot of this energy-efficient entryway. What's so energy-efficient about it? Mrs. Waterbury cocked her head and smiled at Matthew, such a beautiful child. Reminds me of my Herb. You have a son. Herb's a grandson. Got 23 grandchildren and eight children. No wonder the woman had osteoporosis. I imagined each fetus she grew, sucking the marrow out of her bones with a straw. Biologically impossible, I knew, but not emotionally. 
I thought of fixing meals for eight kids, folding eight stacks of socks and underwear, reading to eight kids, then listening to them read to me, making sure eight kids practice eight instruments, giving eight practice spelling tests, and listening to eight sets of personal problems. It was exhausting. I couldn't help thinking one of Mrs. Waterbury's children had been shortchanged somewhere along the line. I'll admit I felt superior in my decision to have only one child. I tried not to show it. I tried to sound impressed. Wow, I can barely manage to meet the needs of one child. She looked at me smugly. Oh, not everyone can manage it, that's for sure. Where did you say your child was born? I didn't. I was on to her, all right. She actually thought Matthew was a milk carton kid that needed rescuing. That's what I thought, she said. What did you say Mr. Waterbury did? I don't know why I bothered to ask. I guess I was just curious if there really was one. Maybe she was so batty she dreamed the whole family up. Sits on his duff all day and watches TV? I can't bear it myself. I need to work. I have my 40-year pin with Central Valley. End of August. You're a working mom with eight kids? I still needed to get out in the world, make my mark. It's a good company, good benefits. You ought to consider it. They're always looking for fresh fish. Me? Work for the electric company? Oh, no, I'm working on my doctorate and... Professional student, huh? We have one of those in the family, too. That'd be Seth, my second to the eldest youngest. Obviously, I wasn't a professional anything. A professional makes money, something I didn't point out to Mrs. Waterbury. I just stood there, struck dumb, watching her retreat down the walkway, the golf ball bouncing along like the little red dot on Matthew's sing-along videos. I slammed the door, locked it, then spied out the peak hole to be sure she actually got in her truck and drove away. My heart was racing. I don't know if it was fear or rage. I was certain I hadn't seen the last of her. The woman had a screw loose. Maybe she was menopausal. Then I realized she was too old for that. I didn't believe the energy-efficient entryway story, not for a second. Maybe she just missed having little kids around and wanted a picture of my gorgeous guy. That didn't seem right either. The way she glanced at Matthew, it seemed like she didn't much care for children. Matthew, I called, wondering what mischief he was up to. I placed a mug of cold coffee in the microwave and flattened the morning paper on the counter. Staring up at me was a handsome young man. He had once been some mother's sweet baby boy who shot down 22 people at a fast food place in Kansas. A psychiatrist friend once told me that a person's behavior is based 97% on biological makeup and 3% on environment. I could read Matthew every book in the library and he could still turn out a mass murderer. I wondered if the misuse of Mr. Potato Head body parts was an early indication. The microwave dinged. I brought my coffee into the hall where I was sorting laundry. Matthew? I glanced into his room and found it empty. The bathroom door was closed, so I tried the knob. It was locked. I knocked. Matthew, open up. The knob moved a fraction of an inch. I stooped to examine it. No little hole I could stick a bobby pin into. I paced up and down, stepping over the piles of dirty clothes, trying to think what to do. Taking down the door wasn't possible. The hinges were inside the room. 
If I went outside and broke the double-paned energy-saving window, the flying glass could injure Matthew. I wish my husband were in his office so I could call him. I wasn't sure what he could do, but it would have been a relief just to have him here for us. Matthew, I called through the door, put both hands on the doorknob and turn it. Try hard. The doorknob rattled. Matthew, if you open the door, then I'll buy you a new fire truck book, all your own. I read somewhere that you should never set up if-then situations with a child, but I caught myself doing it all the time. The doorknob rattled again. I can't. He wasn't being difficult this time. He really couldn't do it. I dialed 911, feeling guilty, like I was making a prank call. This isn't really an emergency, I told the operator, but I don't know who else to call. After I explained the situation, he asked if there were medicines or cleansers stored in the room. Just toothpaste, I said. Is the tub full? The only water in there is the toilet, and he refuses to go near that. Keep him talking. I'll send someone right over. I sat on the floor in the hall, chatting with Matthew through the locked door about axes, pike poles, and circular saws. I realized that firefighters could be violent. I heard the siren in the distance getting closer. I hoped no houses were on fire, no one had stopped breathing, that I had not stolen a rescue team from someone who really needed it. I ran outside and flagged the firefighters down. Their yellow fire truck was as long as our lawn, its volume measuring my incompetence as a mother. I was certain I would be found out, even though our neighborhood is deserted during the day, everyone off doing some meaningful work. I led the firefighters out of the glaring sunlight into our dark hall. I never turned lights on during the day, but I flicked the switch and then thought of Mrs. Waterbury. There were three men in rubber boots, jackets out to here, fire hats, and hip boots. Huddled at the bathroom door against the mini mountain range of my darks, coloreds, whites, and cold water loads, they whipped out their wallets like gunfighters of the Old West drawing their six-shooters, then took turns jamming various credit and identification cards, each a different thickness, between the door and the jam. In seconds, the door swung open. Matthew was still in his pajamas, holding an oversized, deflated tube of toothpaste, looking wide-eyed at the three huge firefighters, just some people his mom was having over. I resented the urge to hug him fiercely. I didn't want to scare him. I didn't hug him at all, not knowing where to draw the line. Matthew, did you eat all that toothpaste? Solemnly, he shook his head. I looked in the sink, on the floor, in the toilet. I pulled back the shower curtain and find spirals of toothpaste drying on the wall. Matthew, you know you're not supposed to write on the walls. Bugs Kitty did it. Well, well, said one of the men, looks like everything is all right here. It wasn't, but it wasn't anything a firefighter could fix. One of the guys went out to the truck and returned with a clipboard. He made a grand flourish with his hand and ceremoniously clicked the top of a ballpoint pen. The other two firefighters took a step back. Oh, come on, Ted, it's your turn. The one named Ted turned his palm up to accept the pen. 
the three firefighters put their heads together and conferred over the report. After about 20 minutes, I read what I was supposed to sign. I could see why none of them wanted to write it. Gently, I explained about a topic sentence in chronological order. Here, I'll show you. I took the report to the computer. My fingers tingled with the anticipation of wielding nouns and verbs. I let the commas and periods fly, one semicolon even. The printer spit it out, and I handed it to Ted. He read it aloud, then said, Gee, ma'am, you ought to do this for a living. The other two nodded and smiled, and then one of them got worried. Chief's gonna know. Ah, don't worry, said the other. Ted can copy it over in his own handwriting. Chief's gonna know anyway. Matthew and I went outside to see them off. He didn't get to sit high on the yellow fire truck. One of the firefighters offered to hoist him up, but he was too shy. I felt bad about the missed opportunity. I held him in the crook of my arm, and together we waved goodbye. He watched the fire truck pull away while I watched his happiness, thinking up adult equivalents. Having my husband walk through the door every evening at six, going, Honey, I'm home, like TV sitcom dads, and having my dissertation finished. Really, I didn't want it finished. I just wanted to work on it some more. Venice and the 17th century seemed too far away, out of my reach. Who the hell cared if I ever found out another damn thing about Barbara Strozzi's slides and turns? I did. I wanted to. It was what was important to me, like Mrs. Waterbury's energy conservation inspections were to her. Musicologists think Barbara Strozzi was a working girl, a prostitute, because in her portrait she is holding a viola da gamba, an instrument that must be pressed between the legs to play, and because she allowed her name to be published with her compositions. I'd like to be the one to clear her dear name, but I don't even get to try until Matthew goes to first grade, and that's wishing his early years away. My mother never had anything to get back to. She dusted and mopped and washed and cooked. She once told me she had spent the best years of her life raising my brother and me. My immediate thought was, what else was she going to do with them? I didn't dare voice it, not only to avoid the eminent slap across the face, but because of the tragic pride of her tone. I used to look down on my mom. I don't anymore. Motherhood is like those picture books I thought I could write. I gave up on the idea right then. It's not as easy as it looks. Matthew kicked and squirmed, so I put him down. Let's do it again, he said, and ran into the house. I was afraid I wouldn't catch him in time, but I found him frozen in front of the TV. A robust, bearded man wearing an apron and swiping off a counter was pitching bartending school to him. I grabbed my purse and headed down the hall. I shut the bathroom door and started practicing with my credit cards. It turned out my laminated library card was the key. Matthew made the fire calls in the Fresno Bee after trash bin fire, gas fumes check, man down, it read, child locked in house, and then it gave our address. I was cutting out the notice to glue it in Matthew's baby book when I saw Mrs. Waterbury trotting up the walkway, escorted 
by a policeman, or rather vice versa. Mrs. Waterbury was holding the same exact newspaper clipping that I was. What had I done to the woman that she should take it this far? Did she really believe I was Matthew's kidnapper, or did she want to crawl into my attic that badly? I dashed to Matthew, who was playing on the hearth. Come on, quick! We need to go into Mommy's room, right now. I clutched his shoulders from behind to steer him into the right direction, but he wriggled free. I'm making something. He was indeed. He had fashioned a kind of pathway out of puzzle pieces leading to a waffle block hut. Through its tiny door, I could see a teacup with an ear nestled inside. The doorbell rang. I hoisted Matthew by the waist. He kicked and screamed bloody murder. More evidence Mrs. Waterbury could use against me. And now she had a witness. The doorbell was pressed again and again like a panic button. Matthew's brow was tense with the concentration it took to balance a fake hot dog on an inclined railroad track. He had work to do. How would I ever get his mind off of it? For starters, I said, You know who that is? The firefighters? Clearly he wasn't interested. Not this time. It's a policeman. A policeman? He wandered to the window, still clutching the hot dog. Get away from there, Matthew. He'll see you. I want him to see me. He began to call out, Hello, policeman. Hello. I had no time to reason with him. When had reasoning ever worked with him anyway? I got down on all fours, crawled to the window, and yanked him down with me. Listen, Matthew, I said in a hoarse whisper. Mrs. Waterbury saw you scribbling in library books, and that's against the law. The policeman might have to take you to jail. No, he won't. Matthew shook his head, but doubt clouded his face. He stuck the plastic hot dog in his mouth and bit down. He might. You better run and hide. Quick. It's your only chance. Yeah, yeah, I know. Emotional scars and all that. But what else could I do? Matthew charged down the hall and I followed. He belly flopped on my bedroom carpet and scrambled under the bed. I clutched the receiver with a tense fist and forcibly jabbed the three magic numbers, 911. Am I disappeared, Mommy? Matthew's voice was muffled, coming out from under my bed. I touched his protruding padded bottom with the tip of my toe. Oh, yeah, Matthew, you're safe. The policeman can't see you now. When someone at last answered, I said, Yes, yes, of course it's an emergency. Well, uh, yes, that was me too, but this one is a real emergency. There's an insane woman stalking me, or rather my child. Yes, she's here right now. No, I don't think so. No gun, no weapon at all, except maybe a ladder, but they put me on hold. I mean, they can do that. I took a deep breath to calm myself. Must calm myself. A shadow fell across the room, and I turned around. Goofy Mrs. Waterbury was pressed against the sliding glass, her hat and wig askew, her hands cupped around her prune face. I took one giant step and drew the drapes on her. I may be on hold, but as soon as I get someone to take me seriously, I'm going to get a policeman of my own. That was Janet Nichols Lynch reading her story, Why I'm Calling 911.
In retrospect, by now the mother in Janet's story must surely regret ever having asked Mrs. Waterbury to come to the house in the first place. And why in the world did little Matthew have to lock himself in the bathroom like he did? So that when you're a mom, trying to be a good homemaker and raise your kids in some reasonable way, well, sometimes things just have a way of happening, while other people have a way of misunderstanding. Even though it's going to take a lot of explaining, we wish Matthew and his well-meaning mom all the best. Friends, Janet Nichols Lynch is the author of the coming-of-age historical novel, Peace is a Four-Letter Word, published by Heyday Press. Janet was born and raised in Sacramento, graduated from Sacramento State, completed one master's degree in piano from Arizona State, and another in English from Fresno State, where she was awarded the 2003 Outstanding Thesis Award. She's had stories published in The New Yorker, Seventeen, The San Joaquin Review, Oasis, Confrontation, and elsewhere. Thank you, Janet, for that fine story. We're hoping that you have some more of your fine fiction in seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another segment of Valley Writers Read. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, our writer-reader will be David Barofka. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinchenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinchenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read.